0: Well, dear friends, would you take the copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles in chapter 33. If you want to follow along in the chair Bible, you can find this on page 385. <clears throat> 385. We come tonight to the second half of 2 Chronicles 33. Last week we were shown the horror of King Manasseh's sin and yet the amazing wonder... Of God's grace that rescued even a man like that. Well, we continue to read of Manasseh's story and what will come to follow him in our text. But before we read, let's ask the Lord's help in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you tell us that your word makes wise the simple, that your word rejoices the heart, that your word is as a counselor to instruct us light. To guide us. And Lord, we pray as we come to Your Word that You would bring to bear these effects upon us. Grant to us a ready spirit to receive what You say, to tremble at Your Word. And may You increase our faith, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 14. Manasseh has been restored to his throne, and we read this. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel, and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and all his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, They are written in the Chronicles of the Seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Thus far, God's holy word, and may He bless His word to our hearts tonight. July 3rd, 1972, five burglars were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. Upon media and governmental investigation, it was discovered that these burglars were associated with a campaign to re President Nixon. Eventually, it was brought to light that the committee to reelect the president, given the acronym CREEP, which is interesting, at a meeting three months before, CREEP had decided to spend $250,000 in an intelligence-gathering operation against the Democratic Party. One of the president's chief aides, a counselor renowned as Nixon's hatchet man, Charles Chuck Colson had his hand in planning this operation. Colson was a feared man in Washington. He was called by some the evil genius of the administration. He was ruthless. He once bragged and I think he was serious, I'd walk over my own grandmother to reelect President Nixon. Colson did things like hire thugs to beat up anti-war demonstrators he plotted to raid or firebomb the Brookings Institution. And even in the midst of the Watergate scandal, he sought to defame others. He was a man everyone loved to hate. But, while under investigation and facing arrest, Colson came under the influence of the Gospel. A man named Tom Phillips sought to turn Colson from trusting in himself to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Phillips read to Coulson a portion of C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity, particularly a section about pride, and it cut Coulson to the heart. He was a man of pride, and he knew he had ruined his own life with his arrogance. So on Sunday, August 12, 1973, Coulson, with a humble heart and through many tears, gave his life to Jesus. The question now would be, how would the world that loved to hate this man respond? Well, Democratic Washington saw it as a joke. Several newspapers ridiculed Colson in their editorial comics. Both Newsweek and Time claimed that this was simply a ploy to reduce his sentence because he went to jail over all this. Oh, how it must have grieved Colson's heart he was now rejoicing in Christ while the world continued in its evil ways. Well, the conversion of Manasseh poses a similar question here. How would Judah respond to the conversion of this man, to the compassion of God shown to their king? Manasseh had been dramatically awakened unto grace and was pursuing a new life. But would the people take to all the changes in religious practice? Would they follow him in fidelity to Yahweh Or would the old patterns of sin stick to the people? Well, the chronicler in the text before us sets before us the sad story of a people under the pull of darkness. And we're going to think about it with four headings. First, I want you to see with me cleaning house in verses 14 to 16. In this amazing providence of God, as we saw last week, Manasseh, who had been captured by Assyria, humiliated with hooks, either piercing his nose or his cheek and dragged away, he was yet restored to his throne in Jerusalem. After hearing his prayer for mercy, which arose out of Manasseh's humble heart, the Lord was moved with compassion and answered him. He brought him back to the throne, only now to serve in a new way. Knowing that Yahweh alone is God, Manasseh sought to turn the kingdom in a different direction. And our text highlights three things that Manasseh did now as a man of faith. First, in verse 14, he repaired and extended Jerusalem's walls. Evidently, when Assyria came against Jerusalem and they captured Manasseh, they didn't just humiliate the king, they humiliated the city, breaking down portions of the wall. Now, probably none of us are geographical experts on the features of ancient Jerusalem, So when we read of this building project, we just think to ourselves, oh, Manasseh built something. But the portion of the wall here is the section directly connected to the temple. If you have an ESV study Bible, it has a really helpful map on pages 788 and 89 illustrating the wall around Ophel, which is mentioned here, and it's just below the temple mount. And that means Assyria broke down the wall leading to the most sacred space in Jerusalem. That attack threatened not just the stability of the city, it threatened religion in the city, the true religion. So this man, Manasseh, seeks to make sure the city is safe, but more importantly, to make sure the temple would be safe. Now throughout the book of Chronicles, the author has given us obvious signs of God's blessing and curse the kingdom of Judah is under curse when cities fall, when the temple is plundered, when the walls are destroyed, and obviously when your king is dragged away with hooks in his face. However, the blessing of God attends to the king who builds cities, who expands borders, who repairs the temple, and fortifies the city walls. So the author is saying, just by reporting this, God's favor now rests on Manasseh. Formerly he was under curse, but now he's under the blessing of God. Previously, the man was doing everything to lead to Jerusalem's destruction, but now it's different. And there's a second thing he does. Verse 14 at the end, he put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. Like building projects, strengthening the army served in Chronicles as a way to evidence God's blessing on His people. In the days of godly kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat, the Lord enabled Judah to build up her defenses. So this action by Manasseh is proof that his heart is set on guarding the city, guarding the land that God gave. He's not trying to ape the nations anymore. He's trying to defend what God has given. He loves the cities of Judah. And do you remember part of the promise that the Lord gave to the one or to the people who would humble themselves and pray and turn from sin, what did the Lord say He would do? He will heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 That's what He's doing. That's what this illustrates. God is being faithful to His promises. He will restore the one who seeks Him. He will pour out blessings of any who repent of their pride and turn to Him in humble faith. If you and I turn to the Lord in humble faith, He will... He will come as the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings. And then we should see the corporate effect of Manasseh's repentance. We've noted a number of times as we've studied Chronicles how the sin of the king brings grave consequences to the people. We'll notice here how the repentance of the king affects the nation. The Lord doesn't only give Manasseh evidences of favor, by bringing him home to reign. He blesses the entire nation through Manasseh. And this should remind us all that both our sin and our repentance have far-reaching consequences. No man is an island. What we do for good or for ill significantly impacts others. And it should go to show us that among God's people, We desperately need godly leaders if we want to have God's blessing. Of course, when wolves in leadership bring ruin, God is faithful to preserve His people. But our aim should be to carefully guard the church from corrupt leaders and to pray for our present leaders that they would not slip into sin because if the leader slips, the people suffer. When the leaders are rotten, we all lose. That's true in our family lives, as some of you can painfully testify. It's true in the church as a whole. It's true in society. It must move us to pray for humble, God-fearing men to lead that we might know the blessing of God. Now, while these two actions of building the city and the military are reported first, the key thing Manasseh did was to manifest his true repentance by leaving his former idolatries. Previously, you remember, Manasseh was captivated with sin. There was a catalog of sin. And he did this, and he did this, and he did this. Virtually everything related to the establishment of false gods he was practicing. But now we get a catalog of his repentance. We'll get verse 15. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. Before this, Manasseh had no ears to hear what God's Word had to say about idols. But now he doesn't just remove idols, according to Mosaic Law. He threw them away. That phrase, no doubt, points back to what previous kings had done by taking the idols to the city dump. That's what Hezekiah did with the idols. Manasseh's life is now marked by what John the baptizer will say later, fruit in keeping with repentance. Idol destruction by itself doesn't earn God's favor as though our works buy the blessing of God. But repentance that reaches to the heart is always seen in deeds." Brethren, even the thief on the cross manifests the fruit of repentance. He stops insulting Jesus, and he tells the other thief to stop insulting Jesus. Or more famously with Zacchaeus. His faith isn't created, but it's demonstrated as he pays back the things that he had taken. The claim to serve the Lord is vain without deeds of righteousness. Turning from idols to serve the true God. Or as James famously puts it, and you can probably quote it, faith without works is dead. Are we manifesting the evidence of faith in our lives? Brethren, are we doing more than making a mere profession of faith? Are are we zealous for good works? Are we showing that our former lusts are no longer the Lord of our lives? That's what Manasseh is doing. And yet, see, he's not just putting off sin, he's putting on godly practice. Verse 18 He also, or we could say, and he restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. Like his father before him, Manasseh puts God prescribed worship back in place. He makes the temple the place where Yahweh alone is worshipped and more importantly, worshipped in the way that the Lord says. Additionally, Manasseh is modeling proper worship by making peace offerings and thank offerings. He's acknowledging the Lord is the love of my life before the people. He's not just paying the bill so that the temple can be cleaned up. He's engaging in these acts of devotion himself, acknowledging before the people God has brought these blessings upon me. And then he does one more thing as the leader of the nation. Into verse 16. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Now it's evident that Manasseh is doing all he can to turn this people back to Yahweh. Matthew Henry helpfully notes here, and listen carefully to what he says, those that truly repent of their sins, will not only return to God themselves, but will do all they can to, to recover those that by their example have been seduced and drawn away from God. You understand what he's saying? Once converted and we look back upon the ruin of our life and how we led people to sin, we'll do all we can to repent of that and draw people to the Lord. Manasseh isn't worshiping to please man, but he's worshiping before the eyes of men, being a model to them. And we can see this principle in the lives of the godly in the past. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions, acknowledging all of his evil and his turning to the Lord. John Bunyan wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, again, acknowledging all of his wrongdoing and His coming to the Lord. And even Chuck Colson wrote a book called Born Again, aiming to plead with people to turn from their folly and to see that Jesus is worthy of service. Even the Apostle Paul does this. Don't you see? He has a burden for His people. The very people He once stirred up to attack Christians. He wants them to stop their rebellion and run to the Savior. Now you and I may not write a book to appeal to others, We might might not be a preacher ministering to to others, but if we've tasted the amazing grace that pardons sin, what can we do but call people to turn to the Lord? We make our allegiance known. And that's what Manasseh is doing. But then secondly, and sadly, we see clinging sin. Verse 17, Manasseh is earnest to command the people to serve God alone. And as it pertains to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple itself, he's cut off any possibility of idol worship there. But Manasseh, in his brief reign after he's restored, his efforts at reform don't get beyond the temple, beyond the city of Jerusalem. So what is the impact of Manasseh's repentance and this temple restoration on the worship of the people? Well, sadly, we read verse 17. Nevertheless, that is, in spite of Manasseh's command to only worship Yahweh, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now, it's clear here that there was some impact from Manasseh's command. At the high places that had littered the land, all kinds of pagan idolatry had been practiced. The prophet Isaiah talks about this, explaining in detail how the people burn with lust among the oaks and under every green tree, which is a reference to fertility worship on the high places. Manasseh himself had set up altars for Baal and Asherah on the high places. However, now the people put away their devotion to these other gods and they sacrifice only to Yahweh. And that sounds really positive, doesn't it? What a massive step towards reform. They're no longer offering their children in the fire to false gods. That's an amazing step in the right direction. However, don't be fooled by the halfway repentance. Yes, they now sacrifice to Yahweh alone. But they do it in the high places, which is in direct violation to how Yahweh said He was to be worshipped. The Lord had made it very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 12 when the people came into the land, which had happened hundreds of years ago by this point, they were to seek the place that the Lord would choose to put His name. That was obviously Jerusalem. The Lord had evidenced His choice of Jerusalem as He blessed David to bring the ark to the city and design the temple as He blessed Solomon to build the temple, and then He filled the temple with His glory and brought fire down from heaven to consume the offering. It's abundantly clear that Jerusalem alone is to be the place of sacrifice. But the people did what they've always done. They lived by the old Burger King motto. Have it your way. You see, the people refused to regulate worship according to the Word of God. Now, they understood through Manasseh's example and command that he's calling us back to Yahweh-mandated worship. But they would not shake off their old patterns. They're willing to put away some things, but they're not willing to wholeheartedly follow God to devote themselves to what He requires. They will thus claim the name of the covenant of God and then do whatever they want. Now this, beloved, is a sad scene. And it's a picture of what one famous Puritan has called, it's a chilling title, the almost Christian. The almost Christian. Oh, I'll put off that sin, but not all sin. I'll pray to the Lord alone, but I'm not going to pay attention to His Word. I will say, God is my salvation, but He will not be the King directing my life. In other words, to put it in New Testament terms, I will not deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. You see, that old pagan element of control, I will rule myself, that still resides in the hearts of the people. And the uncomfortable question is for us, does that principle reside in our hearts? Are we willing to kill scandalous sin that might make us look bad in front of others while we cling to respectable sin, private sin, and yet say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. Are we truly crucified to the world and its lusts? renouncing self, submitting to the voice of our Savior, whatever He would say, we're going to crucify. Does the world stick to us? Do we treasure it? We need to remember James says something chilling about the world. Friendship with the world is enmity, hostility toward God. Dear friends, as we watch the ways of the world pull this people to darkness, We should be reminded here that while corrupting men's manners is easy, true spiritual reform is hard. It's it's easy to get in the lazy river of sin and go down the stream. It's hard to cut across the grain of culture. It's hard to bring every pattern, every thought in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have repeatedly seen this people have no heart for the exclusive ways of God. What a grief this would have been to Manasseh. At some level, he knows he brought the people to this very point. Yes, he now tastes the sweetness of God's grace, but his previous rebellion had brought national scars from which the people will not recover because they love their sin. Let us take heed to that as we watch it unfold, that we not be in love with our sin. Thirdly, we see a chronicled life. Beginning in verse 18, we have the closing summary of Manasseh's life, and two matters are highlighted as the king comes to his death. First, notice that in verses 18 and 19, the prayer of Manasseh is mentioned that is, his prayer of repentance. Now, in a 55-year reign here, which is summarized in two verses, it's quite notable that one prayer, one act of God towards Manasseh is mentioned twice. We could even say three times if we add the additional statement in verse 19 that he humbled himself. In the sea of sin that is Manasseh's life, the vast majority of his life, the moment this man cried out for mercy the moment he approached God in humility, that is the thing above all to remember. It's the thing God wants us to remember. The Chronicler is saying to his first readers, and he's saying to us through the Spirit, a man can make a mess of his life with many sins, but if he would humble himself and turn to God, our God will hear, our God will forgive, our God will pour out compassion, And He will make that man to die in peace. Manasseh stands as a contrast to some of the most notorious royal sinners in the house of Judah. You might remember some of these guys. There was wicked Jehoram who died in agony with his bowels coming out. There was evil Ahaziah who was executed. There was Athaliah who subverted the throne the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she was struck down with a sword. There was Joash who started well under the priest Jehoiada and then drifted into corruption and was assassinated. And then just after Manasseh, we're about to read of Ammon, who will die under a conspiracy. But Manasseh, verse 20, will sleep with his fathers and be buried in his house. He won't die in dishonor. And why is that? is because though he once led the people to sin in ways that went even beyond the nations the Lord destroyed he cried out for mercy do you see that our father will receive prodigals he will offer them forgiveness so while manasseh's life and legacy carries a list of abominations it also carries a remarkable display of this amazing grace that God will listen to the cry of the penitent sinner and lavish compassion on the one who sincerely seeks God. That's incredible. And brethren, we should take it to heart. Indeed, we should treasure the truth tonight that if we formerly lived lawless lives, if we were notorious sinners, the chief thing that the Lord remembers about us is not the record of our crimes, but it's our repentance from them. John Newton died at 82 in 1807. And of course, it was customary to prepare, like many of us still do, something on your tombstone. And this is what he had written. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, Was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had once labored to destroy. What's remembered about that man? That God had mercy on him. You may have a litany of sin in your life that you will carry to the grave. Brethren, we all have regrets. We have ways that we have not honored the Lord. But the blood of Jesus hides it all from view. In him there is no condemnation. And are we staking our souls on that fact, rejoicing that there's grace to pardon all our sin? Indeed, what does the Lord say concerning our sin? Romans 4:7, quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Praise be to God, there's covering grace. But there's another thing highlighted in this summary of Manasseh's life, and it's the record of his former crimes written down in sacred history. Verse 18 The words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, they are recorded. These words would have been words of rebuke, no doubt calling him to repent. Words that, about curses that would come upon him if he doesn't turn. And then in verse 19, in addition to his prayer and the Lord being moved, there's also a record of his crimes and all his sin and all his faithlessness and the sites which he built high places and set up Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Now if Manasseh is a forgiven man whose record of debt has been washed away, why are these former sins noted? It's because they stand as a warning. You probably remember the psalmist statement in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is, of course, no one. But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Yet there's a misunderstanding often of what that verse is saying it's not saying that God fails to note our transgressions, that He doesn't have a record of it, of the sins that we've committed. He absolutely does. Indeed, the glory of the Gospel is not that God just forgives. He failed to note down your sin. That would mean He's not just. The glory of the Gospel is that the Father takes all our iniquities and He lays them on Jesus whom He put forth as a propitiation in His blood. The Father made Jesus to be sin with our sin. Jesus bears our cursed load and He satisfies the justice of God. But what becomes of the one who doesn't have a substitutionary sacrifice? Well, their sins are marked and remembered against them. And they shall not stand in the judgment the reminder that Manasseh's sins prior to him humbling himself, it testifies to Judah, your sins are not ignored. And if you don't humble yourself, then the peaceful death attending Manasseh will not be yours. You will die with all of those sins calling for your condemnation. So Manasseh's life has a twofold lesson. Don't think the Lord isn't paying attention and He somehow misses your catalog of sin but if you seek Him, He will be found by you. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And then finally, see with me. Corruption and compassion. After Manasseh's reign, we have a postscript on the chapter. The author turns our attention briefly to Ammon, Manasseh's son, in his two-year reign. And the length of the reign already suggests a hard truth. No godly king in Judah ever reigns longer than 16 years. Now Manasseh is e- a unique example in this list because it's only the last five or so years where he was a godly man. So when we come into Ammon's reign, we're wondering, will he follow Manasseh? You might say, which one? Is he going to follow the proud, prolific idolater or is he going to follow the penitent pursuer of religious reform? Well, we get a depressing fact here in verse 22. Verse 22. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. He was a corrupt clone of his father's former practice. He's about 16 or 17 when Manasseh is rescued from sin and restored to the throne. But Ammon cares nothing about his father's new faith. Yes, it's true. Manasseh had been a rotten example to Ammon in his formative years. But God's grace now spoke volumes Everybody knows of Manasseh's new direction as he cleans house in the temple, removing idols. And surely Ammon could see the prosperity and protection the Lord gave Manasseh after his humility. But they made no impression upon Ammon. He didn't choose the way of humility. He chose the way of control, the way of the prevailing culture. I'm going to do it my way, although I'm going to appeal to every god under the sun that I may somehow find favor. And while it's true, Ammon could say, that's what my daddy did. If you're a country music fan, he could sing Hank Williams Jr.'s song, Family Tradition, blaming all of his sin on the way his family was. And yet the truth is, Ammon knows his sin is his own. Because there's one arresting way. He's not like his father. He did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. And what happens because this man pursued pride rather than humility? Well, he incurred guilt more and more. Not only is he guilty of committing a whole host of abominations by bowing down to the idols his father used to worship, and think of the gall of this. Manasseh had purged the temple of idols. That would be known to Ammon. He had then taken all the idols and thrown them in the Kidron Valley, which is the garbage dump. But Ammon is willing to go to the trash heap to get them and put them all back. But then he's also guilty of the sin of omission, not responding to the grace shown his father. He scoffs at grace. And it sets up Ammon for an atrocious death. Verse 24, "...the servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house." Now we have no idea why the servants killed the king What we do know is that the assassins didn't follow the model of David who dared not touch or raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, even though Saul was evil. And they themselves, these assassins, meet the same end as the king. It appears then that wickedness is being added to wickedness. But remember, God is governing even the wickedness of man for His purposes. Because through the hand of the conspirators, the Lord is bringing judgment to Ammon. Indeed, don't you see a contrast here between Manasseh's death and Ammon's death? Manasseh dies and is buried in his house in peace, being remembered as a man to whom God showed mercy because he humbled himself. But Ammon, the proud man, is cut down in his house because he refused to repent. The lesson seems blatantly clear, doesn't it? The one who refuses to repent will be struck down. It's not an exciting way to end a sermon, is it? It's where the text ends. Now, you might not be struck down for a conspiracy. You might die of natural causes after a long life. But the soul that sins shall die. The humble, they'll be saved. The proud will be humbled. Only the one who turns to God can lay down his head in peace. What's it going to be for you and for me? Here at the end with Ammon, we learn that the general truth of the Proverbs is true. The years of the wicked will be cut short. It's not always true. Manasseh lived a long time in wickedness. he saved in his 60's. But Ammon, he dies at 24 years old. Billy Joel got it wrong. He once sang, only the good die young. That's not the biblical principle. If you indulge sin, Don't presume that the Lord's going to give you more days. And it's a striking thing to note, and let me press this to our covenant children. Ammon ignored the godliness of his father, even though it was just for a few years. Will you ignore the godliness of your parents? Ecclesiastes gives you this warning You need to serve the Lord in the days of your youth. Remember God while you're young, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, God will receive me if I repent at the 11th hour. That's true. There's the example at the thief on the cross. But there's also that old bumper sticker that says, those who seek mercy at the 11th hour die at 1030. Don't presume on the grace of God. Seek this God of grace now. And why not? Do you see how amazing His grace is? They He would give His own Son to save sinners. Praise be to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into Your presence and we are awed by grace that saves the likes of Manasseh, grace that remembers not His transgressions against Him. And yet we are also sobered by a man and a people who refused to take heed to Your grace but walked in rebellion. Lord, may we not go in such a direction. Would You arrest us in our sin? May we never be found as almost Christians. Let us be devoted in our whole heart to You, the Lord our God, for You are worthy of our worship. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.